Welcome, everyone, to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host for today, Anne Winterstrand. I have today Dr. Andrea Salenza, who is a training and supervising analyst at the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, faculty at the Massachusetts Institute for Psychoanalysis, and an assistant clinical professor at Harvard Medical School. She is co-director with Dr. Martha Stark of a blended online program in psychoanalytic psychotherapy sponsored by William James College. As part of this program, she offers an online course entitled What, Where is Psychoanalysis? Classic Concepts, New Meanings, Tracing a Trajectory of Psychoanalytic Theorizing from the Intrapsychic to the Intersubjective. Dr. Salenza is the recipient of several awards and has authored two books, Sexual Boundary Violations, Therapeutic, Supervisory, and Academic Contexts, was published by Jason Aronson in 2007. She has recently produced an online video-recorded lecture on sexual boundary violations designed for ethics seminars, group viewing, or individual use. For more information about that, go to her website at www.andreasalenza.com. Dr. Salenza is a therapist and analyst in private practice in Lexington, Massachusetts. And a few minutes, I just learned that she's an avid soccer player (laughs) out of the closet and very proud of it. (laughs) Her newest book, Erotic Revelations, Clinical Applications and Perverse Scenarios, was published by Rutledge in 2014. And it brings her to our show today. Welcome, Andrea, and thank you for being our guest on New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thank you, Anne. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to this interview. I uh, really enjoyed the book, and I think it has so many important things for all practitioners to um, think about. And actually, as I was reading your book and sitting with my patients over the last few weeks, I was very aware um, as to how difficult it can be to, to sort of get in touch or even allow yourself to experience whatever is sexual or erotic in the room. Um, And I think it's a a very important topic that our listeners are going to be interested in. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write the book? Um, Sure. Um, Actually, not unlike what you just described, uh, having the experience of how difficult it is to sit with uh, and contain um, what's erotic and sexual in the room. But then I really started with a patient who wouldn't really let me deny, dismiss, or minimize the erotic aspect of our relationship. And uh, I realized that I had to learn more about it and that I uh, was just not knowing exactly how to handle it and not remembering much in my training that that helped me with this. So I looked at the literature and and I found two things in the literature. Uh, one, I found that there wasn't much. Right. <laughs> and when I say there isn't much, I mean uh, for a female analyst with a male patient. There's plenty right. on the erotic transference uh, with male analysts and a female yeah. patient. And then a lot of that, too, can be kind of derogatory. And it's, you know, but mostly about these dramatic hysterics or yeah. really difficult borderline patients, you know. 
and that has a whole history and culture to it. Um, but I was looking specifically for female analysts with male, male patients. patients. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there were only a handful of, uh, no, actually at the time there was really very little, uh, even less than five. And then also with the five that were, or less than five mm. that were in the literature, the erotic transference did not match what my experience was. Mm. Um, you know, they were muted um, and they were being treated, I thought, as if they were maternal transferences or in the sense of uh, maternal in a non-erotic erotic way. Non-erotic way, exactly. So it didn't turn out to be much help. And then I came across some literature that speculated that um, female analysts actually don't get erotic transfer huh. uh, from their male patients. It, it was an accepted, I think, myth um, that was um, uh, hy- hypothesized to have come about because of the power imbalance in the therapeutic setting mm-hmm. and how it runs counter to norms where, you know, the male should be dominant and the female mm-hmm. should be more submissive. Well, first of all, I just didn't think that was true right. uh, because there I was having a patient with a very intense erotic transference. It's a couple of chapters in my book, as mm-hmm. you know, um, my, I'm talking about my patient, Michael, Michael. Mm-hmm. exactly. And, um, and then, um, so I didn't think that was true. And then I wondered, well, but then there were these papers that I thought the female analysts were Mute, we're playing a part in muting the transference. So mm-hmm. that got me very intrigued. And then I, you know, th- so that's the main way that I came about uh, wanting to write a book about this, or at least wanting to write a paper, which I did. Uh, I wrote the paper on Michael, um, which was published in JAPA. Mm-hmm. That started my interest in it. Um, of course, it is also related to my work with sexual boundary violations right. because here's uh, uh, a concentrated effort to demonstrate ways in which to handle erotic transferences without getting into trouble. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the and maintaining thing. the frame. Exactly. Um, and then at the time that I was. Uh, beginning to write the book, I still was overseeing the training for psychology, psychology interns at Cambridge Hospital. Um, so I've always been very interested in training and what what aspects of training are uh, insufficient. Mm-hmm. What what can I do to help uh, or to fill you know some empty spaces? Right. I think that those were the reasons I devoted myself for the last five five or six years to this topic. Right. So um, as we get further into the interview, um, we'll talk about the two distinct parts of your book. And the first mm-hmm. part really being about um, the, quote, management of erotic transference, erotic countertransference in treatment and the um, techniques and the con- theoretical considerations, et cetera. And then the second part of your book really being about um, your reconceptualization of perversion, which I think is also very interesting. And I, mm-hmm. I was kind of interested in how you juxtaposed those two parts in the, as a structure for the book. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if you mm-hmm. could say anything to that. It's just something I was curious about. Um, you know, I struggled with that. Um, and there was a time toward the end when I was preparing the manuscript that I wondered if it really was two books yeah. um, instead of one book put together. I decided to keep it as one book because I was able to see a thread that tied the two topics together. First of all, perversion so often has to do with sexuality. Right. Uh, so, so that's, so we're still in the realm of erotics anyway. Um, also, I couldn't help while I was writing all the papers on erotic transferences and erotic countertransferences dealing with issues of gender. Um, right. Even though that was not a primary interest of mine, at least in the beginning, it was not. And I had treated several people who had various kinds of fetishes or, or elaborations of a fetish, which are basically fantasies that you act out. Um, and they so often had to do with issues around gender. Mm-hmm. So I started to see all these links between the two topics, and I decided in the end to make it part one and part two. Um, right. Yeah, and it works really well together. It was just a, an interesting juxtaposition mm-hmm. of those. And later, I hope we'll get to talk about your um, conceptualization of perversion because it's very different than what's been sort of handed down to us from the classical uh-huh. literature. Um, but sort of getting to another, um, premise or aspect of your book is your observation that psychoanalysis has been sort of pervasively desexualized, Mm. um, Mm -hmm. and where it was once very sexually infused in terms of human and human development, you have some ideas about how and why we've forgotten this, (laughs) Mm-hmm, and right. there's something to do with kind of um, the relational turn? Well, you know, that actually was not my idea. Okay. Um, but but that's a, I have uh, much to say, and it's a really good question. I think that uh, psycho, not only psychoanalysis, but I think we could say everything tends to get desexualized because sexuality makes us all uncomfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that there are reasons that it does. It's not just a, a facet of Western civilization, um, which tends to be kind of puritanical, mm-hmm. especially America, actually. Yeah. Um, the Europeans <laughs> wonder, you know, what are we doing over here in right. the United States? The Puritans have been long gone. Right. But actually, the desexualization is pretty pervasive um, around the world. And, um, well, I guess that's a big statement to make. And I, I you know, I, I have to give that some more thought, but there, I did put it out there. Um, psychoanalysis, you know, Freud's big struggle was to get people to recognize the sexuality inherent in a lot of his patients' symptomatology. And then he was uh, reviled for being this outlandish neurologist slash psychoanalyst who was sexualizing everything. And, um, you know, childhood sexuality, for example, was this big scandal mm-hmm. and the hysterics, you know, being seen as repressed and, and all. This was a big revolution so, so that it became uh, associated with psychoanalysis in 
in everyday language, and people would say, oh, psychoanalysis, that's all about sex. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was for a couple of decades, maybe, and then psychoanalysis, which, which you know, gravitated toward its interest in the unconscious, was always looking for something behind something. You know, things were never as they appear. A cigar was never just a cigar. Mm-hmm. So then the, the phrase, oh, psychoanalysis, it's all about sex, except for sex, that's about aggression. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that started happening. And I think that that's already an indication that even psychoanalysts back in the 20s and 30s, let's say 30s and 40s, we're moving away from sexuality. Hmm. I think it's a natural tendency because it makes us feel vulnerable. Right. Um, it's about desire. It's about longing. And um, it's actually easier to talk about aggression because right. when you are discussing or having aggressive feelings, you feel armed. Mm-hmm. You feel ready for battle. It's like you put on your 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 mail, your your suit of armor, and I didn't mean M-A-L-E, I meant, you know, the uh, coat of arms. Mm -hmm. Um, But you you don't feel defenseless, whereas when you're longing, Mm. um, um, desiring, um, you're feeling a lack, you're feeling a Mm -hmm. kind of need, and I think we are very defended against that. So... uh, so the current desexualization that has been noticed um, is really quite recent. Andre Green maybe was the first um, where he wrote a paper, does psychoanalysis have anything to do with sex? You know, it was an, mm-hmm. a, an ironic title because it had everything to do with sex mm-hmm. in, in the past. But Fonagy recently did a study, an electronic search of journals on the PEP and found an inverse relationship between relational words and sexual words. And it uh, demonstrated that perhaps the current interest in, in current interest in relational theories, but even before that, object relational theories, um, helped to move people away from sexuality, um, you know, to the point where uh, my friend Muriel Dimon uh, is fond of saying, instead of where id was, there shall ego be, mm. she says where sex was, there shall objects be. Mm. Um, and I think that's apt. I think um, it's, it's a way, again, to focus on something else, focus on the relationship, focus on attachment, rather than the tension-filled erotics in right. the relationship. Um, there's something you say later in the book about um, culture, the role of culture in this maybe the desexualization is sort of a defense against, you don't quite put it this way, but I wondered um, against how overstimulating American mm-hmm. society is when it comes oh, to yeah. sex, sexuality um, in a very objectified way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say that more repressive societies will have, perhaps have greater occurrence of perversions. Yes, I wonder about that. I don't have any, um, I don't have any hard, I don't have hard data on that. But of course, you do have the stereotype of the, you know, minister who's preaching hellfire and damnation on Sundays, and then he's, uh, you know, molesting um, 
children, and I'm not just talking about Catholic priests here, um, you know, uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't have hard data right. on that. On the other hand, I have noticed in um, adolescent psychology in general, it is so uh, oriented toward exposing the body, especially for girls mm-hmm. um, and the whole hookup culture, um, which is dominating our experience. Um, in fact, my goddaughter, Isabel Eccles, has... Um, done a study which looks at the hookup culture and the way that sometimes the way college female students get drawn into it without realizing how it can hurt them. Right. Um, In any case, we are living at the moment in a culturally permissive manner, at least on a behavioral level, but then you have patients who come in and and say they don't feel their sexuality, right. you know, that they go through the motions um, and, you know, maybe they're even promiscuous, but um, it, it, is it helping us in an embodied way? Is it helping us right. enjoy? Um, and the body can be experienced as sort of a thing like, or, you know, an object yes. to the self. Um, yes. That is, I don't mean an object in the sense of object relations, meaning mm-hmm. objectified, um, in sort of thing like and unfeeling. Um, exactly. You know, mm-hmm. so you do pay a lot of attention to gender in your book and you talk about um, the binary and the spectrum. Um, you propose that, um, I found this really interesting. Symptoms, inhibitions, and anxieties, this is your quote, often result from the individual or patient's unconscious overcommitment to one pole of the masculine-feminine binary. Yes. Can you say more about that? Well, um, you would have to, uh, in reading that, um, notice, I would want you to notice that masculine and feminine are in quotes or in... Right. Because... Because... We no longer think of masculinity and femininity as tied to anatomy mm-hmm. or even tied to some kind of given, but rather as socially constructed. Right. And um, in the past, let's say in the 50s, and of course the TV series Mad Men is all about this, the gender roles were so dichotomized mm-hmm. and uh, let's say polarized um, so that, on the one hand, people knew what to do if they bought into it, mm-hmm. but then they often didn't realize that they were extremely unhappy um, on either side of the pole. You know, it's easy to sort of think of men as having the dominant and um, having the the lucky end on that continuum, but men can be as imprisoned or were as imprisoned by those quite narrow definitions of how to be in terms of gender role as women were Mm -hmm. oppressed. Um, You know, it's like the master needs the slave as much as the slave needs the master, that they both define each other. And that's, that's what's meant by a dialectic. But in any case, um, what I mean, and when I say in the book that the binary is not dead, it is not even binary, Mm -hmm. um, is that we have, all these tendencies and potentials within ourselves, each of us, no matter what our anatomical 
sex is. There's a kind of bi-gendered potentiality. And I do think that the healthier uh, resolution is a mixture, mm-hmm. um, that women need to come to terms with their uh, thrust and penetrating abilities just as men need to be receptive and feelingful. And, of course, I use those adjectives as uh, ones that were associated with male and female in the past only. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've done, the feminist movement especially can be um, thanked for doing a great job in helping men get more in touch with and becoming more receptive to a feelingful way of life. But I'm not sure we've helped women uh, harness their power as much as they could um, Mm -hmm. without disclaiming what they might actually associate with femininity at the same time. Right. And you talk about later in the book, too, that some of those conflicts show up in the sense of um, objectification of the self or um, curtailing of appetites and desire, um, that, that sort of... Yes, trying to control desire, trying to control longing and not feel it, not trying to control what otherwise might have been associated with femininity in order to stand erect you know, that we make all kinds of compromises and give over one thing to another. Mm-hmm. I think I used, uh, in the in one chapter, I used the movie um, Black Swan. Black Swan, yeah. That yeah, was a great example. To show, to show that struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, that was great. Um, so I was really struck in reading your book, um, how the case illustrations are so... Um, exquisitely detailed and there's such a fine attention to the shifts in um, what you're tracking in your countertransference and what you're observing about the transference and the erotic material and the way you write about that was Mm -hmm. I thought very beautiful and very sensitive. Well thank you. And you use erotic material um, as examples of sort of phases in treatment, as well as to illustrate moments of impasse. Um, uh-huh. I was wondering what it was like for you to write in that sort of detailed clinical vignette mm-hmm. way. Um, how was that for you to kind of reveal yourself as an analyst, knowing that, you know, it's going to be published and there's patient material, et cetera. I just wanted to get some of your Thoughts mm-hmm. about what that was like for you? Sure. Thank you for asking that. Um, well, um, you know, I've, I've been writing and presenting and teaching my whole career. So that is uh, a question and a challenge that I have faced uh, in different ways, but for a long time. Um, writing has now become a way that I think, mm-hmm. a, way, a way that I think through something is I write about it. It doesn't always get published. <laughs> but um, so I know that when you're asking about writing, you mean publishing, um, and especially about cases. Um, yeah, because I think, I mean, just to that point that yeah. writing as, uh, I don't want to call it an exercise, but writing as a process of thinking is different than writing with the intention of publishing. There's a kind of a, 
um, level of disclosure and reveal of yeah. yourself. Yes. And um, I think in general, our patients know that we write or know that a lot of us write. But if you write a lot, like, uh, you know, I, I do, um, your patients will generally know that too. Mm. And they might actually follow your writing and uh, bring it in. So it's, it's an added um, level of complexity. Um, the first thing is, is easy, and, and I can just sort of get that out of the way, which is the disguise of the patient. That is, that is easy to do because, uh, you know, we're used to confidentiality. We're used to um, making our patients anonymous and protecting their identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's not really the... Uh, most difficult issue. But in any case, if I'm going to write about a patient or would like to, most often I get their permission mm-hmm. and I write the I- identifying data section with them mm-hmm. so that they are comfortable that they will not be recognized. Right. Um, but the mo- more difficult question is whether to write about someone who's in treatment or not in treatment whether to write about them at all, uh, because even if you disguise, um, you know, their identity, they will recognize themselves, and that's a more personal issue. And um, the a lot of people have written uh, some very good papers on this: Lou Aaron, mm-hmm. Glenn Gabbard, Judy Kantrowitz, um, and they've thought this issue through better than I have. So I would. Anybody listening, if you're interested in this particular thing, I would recommend those three um, Mm -hmm. authors in particular. Um, Permission is complicated, you know, because if, for example, if the patient's still in treatment, you can't ask them outside the structure of the setting, which means they are compromised in their capacity to say no. Mm -hmm. Um. Or if they can say no, they may still feel, have feelings about it, that you're intruding with something that has to do with you and it does not have to do with them. Right. Um, and that um, is, it's complicated. Another colleague of mine, Peg Krasnopol, has written a paper on how to use a published article with case material with your patient. Um, you know, so that it becomes a part of the treatment. Your writing is not only for you, but for the process itself. Right. And, that, and that's, that's very interesting. In any case, um, legally, it's probably best to get permission. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a psychoanalyst needs to be attuned to the complexity of that, that even if a person says yes, perhaps they want to say no, or perhaps they want to say yes and no. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I remember... Um, my first analyst um, was giving a talk at a conference, big conference. There were like a thousand people and I was in the audience and he was about to present a case. And I remember getting very, very anxious and worried. Maybe it was going to be me, you know, (laughs) and then it wasn't. And I was really disappointed. Right. I was going to say that's like the wish fear. (laughs) Exactly. It's a wish fear. Exactly. Um, I think, uh, you know, so, so if I haven't asked permission, another thing that I'll often do is, um, 
use, uh, I, I'll construct a composite, you know, so that though I say it's a case, it's actually several cases. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's another, another way to go about it. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, that the, there, the desire to be sort of held by your analyst in that way and, and then the fear yeah. is, is like, I could really relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about just kind of getting back into erotic material within the analytic dyad. Um, you talk about the asymmetry that makes the analytic space a seductive situation. And then maybe we can also talk a little bit about the female analyst and the male mm-hmm. patient. Right. Right. Well, you know, the asymmetry it's, is, uh, I actually wrote more about this in my first book. Uh, the asymmetry is what defines the analytic setting. Um, it's what makes it not a friendship. Uh, and it also has to do with our skill and expertise and training that we bring to the relationship. But we have that with our friends as well. But the, it is the asymmetry that defines it as a therapeutic process. And so it is not only definitional of the setting, it's, um, it's crucial to the setting. And at the same time, there's a mutual aspect to this experience. Those two axes, mutuality and asymmetry, are in some ways contradictory, but they exist simultaneously. And we cannot disclaim one or the other. We could say in a stereotypical and probably overgeneralized way that classical psychoanalysis emphasized the asymmetry and maybe refused to acknowledge the mutuality in the relationship. Uh, Contemporary theories, especially relational theories, can sometimes overemphasize the mutuality Mm -hmm. and attempt to disclaim the asymmetry. Both are problematic. Right. So... um, I don't remember exactly what your question was about this. <laughs> Just talking about what, you know, you're, you're thinking, cause you do write about the, what, how the analytic diet can become seductive mm-hmm. um, and how the erotic material um, arises out of that. Uh, the, I guess I'm calling it the frame. Um, yeah. I'll read you just a little quote from your case illustration of Michael. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You write, he became fond of rephrasing the Hippocratic oath as your hypocritical oath. The refusal to engage in sexual activity seemed hypocritical to him, given the seductive atmosphere of the analytic situation. Yes, exactly. You know, we deal in metaphors. Mm-hmm. We, uh, when we explore what something means, we are engaging in analogic thinking. In other words, ana- by analogy, we're saying this feels like that. Um, and we have to remember how it feels to be in an asymmetric uh, relationship that is at the same time mutual. So you have your analyst saying, tell me more, which is an invitation and a kind of receptivity to your feelings and desires. And then the analyst may also 
make a comment or an interpretation about what something might mean, especially if it's done in an authoritative way, uh, that can feel penetrating. Mm-hmm. Sometimes empathy can feel penetrating. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you're if an analyst says, "I know, I I know you feel that," you know that can feel like you know you've touched somebody's soul, mm-hmm. if it's authentic and and if it's right on. So uh, there is a way in which the relationship is both penetrating and opening up, um, and this is this is a seductive thing. Um, but it's not acted upon in a sexual way. Right. And it's also not symmetric in the sense that the it, it goes one way uh, in terms of who's exposing what, mm-hmm. at least consciously and intentionally. So it's a difficult thing to tolerate and contain. And right. it's difficult for both. Um, I write in my first book uh, and also in subsequent papers a lot about how difficult it is for us to feel deprived. Yeah. Um, you know, that our needs are not being met, that we are decentering in that way all the time. We are always listening to someone else and focusing on someone else. That's the power that the patient has. Mm-hmm. We don't tend to think about that so much. Right. Um. You, um, you propose the question... Um, and I think this is from your earlier writing, but you bring it up in this book as well. Um, the question, I guess, to yourself is, why can't we be lovers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you say this is an essential question that therapists must be able to explore within themselves in relationship to the patient. And that gives yes. us really critical information about the patient's experience, especially potentially in relationship to their bodies and sexuality. Exactly. Um, this is an extension of a phrase that Paul Russell used to uh, wonder and propose. Um, also, Harold Searles um, used to talk about that. He, he, it's in one of his papers that, it, you know, we should all wonder what it would be like to be married to the patient. Mm. Um, this is not in any way something to disclose, but it is, it's like a mental exercise. What would it be like to be with this person, um, to be lovers with this person and what would stand in the way? Mm. What am I feeling? Are they able to arouse me? Uh, or am I feeling something else? And this was extremely helpful in helping me understand Michael in the different phases of the, of the analysis, for example, because I felt different things at different times. So the erotic transference evolved. And, um, you know, often when I teach about erotic transferences and erotic countertransferences, the students immediately say, but, you know, so tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but the fact is you can't know what to do until you know what's going on. And many, many different things can be going on. And as you know, from having read, um, my book and especially the chapters on Michael, different things were going on at different times. So in the early phases of the analysis, I was asking why, I don't know that I actually asked it with these words, but why can't we be lovers? Uh, I knew why I will, I didn't want to be mm-hmm. um, with Michael because I didn't feel erotically aroused. I felt suffocated and frightened at different times, very frightened. 
And then that was the next phase. Yeah. Yes. And then, and then I was frightened and obsessed, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, obsessed for, out of fear, um, which was an accomplishment for him because I think he wanted me to be obsessed with him. And mm-hmm. the only way he knew how to do it was to threaten me. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course that is not in the end what he wanted, which was also lovely, um, a lovely aspect of his character that could finally emerge once he became less afraid of his aggression. Mm-hmm. But it just in, in those two phases of the experience with Michael and the use of my countertransference, you can see that erotic transferences can mean different things and can arouse different things in you. Right. And that if we are, if we have access to that within ourselves and we can, we can really use it in the treatment to understand the patient. Yes. Um, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk about multiplicity because you mm-hmm. also have a beautiful metaphor in the book that um, it helped me kind of really understand the place of sexuality and the erotic in the treatment. Um, the metaphor of the bicycle with multiple spokes mm-hmm. and this idea of finding radial true. Mm-hmm. Um, I, could you say a little bit about that for the listeners so they can understand that metaphor? Cause I thought it was really beautiful. Sure. Um, I'm not particularly a bicycle rider, so I don't <laughs> no, know. You're a, why. you're a soccer player. You just yeah, came out. <laughs> no, thank you so much for saying that at the beginning. <laughs> Sometimes I care more about that than anything that goes on during the week. I'm a botanist um, and no one knows it, but now I just oh, said really? it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how I came up with that metaphor. I actually don't remember, but I do remember one thing. I remember calling a bicycle shop. And this, this is after I came up with the visual of the bicycle wheel. And, um, and I, I already was taken with the idea of multiplicity, that we are many things to our patients simultaneously. If we can capture and contain all of the uh, elements or dimensions of the relationship and maintain a hold on all of them. I did think of a bicycle wheel, so I, I actually called a bicycle shop and I said, is there such a thing... I knew about truing the wheel, like when things are in balance and the the wheel is turning um, in a uh, because the spokes are equally uh, tight, tight, tightened in an equal way. There isn't one spoke that is more tight than another. Um, so that's called truing the wheel. And I asked if there was such an expression called radial true, mm. and the guy said, "Well." I think I know what you mean, but no. <laughs> so you coined so, it. I coined I said, well, I'm going to use it anyway because <laughs> I kind of like the sound of it, actually. It is. It's really. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, but the purpose was more than just coming up with a good metaphor. Um, the purpose was to help clinicians think about uh, the the multidimensionality of the relationship because if you focus on one or, yeah, if, it's possible that one or another is foregrounded at any particular time, but the others are in the background and need to be in your consciousness in some way. Um, but if you have a spoke that's disconnected, like some dissociated part of yourself that you haven't dealt with in some way that the patient is connecting to, um, and this mm. is often a problem with sexual boundary violations. 
there's an overemphasis of that way of relating to the exclusion of the others, and then the dyad becomes kind of unidimensional. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try to capture that uh, in some way. So, yeah. That's- um, talking about the what you call the slippery slope, and I know this is part of your earlier writing, um, mm-hmm. but you do talk about the perils of the erotic countertransference and um, risk of sexual boundary transgression. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about, is it ever warranted to verbally disclose erotic trans countertransference? Um, could mm-hmm. you speak to that? Sure. Uh, that, that's a chapter in the book, yeah. as you know, and um the reason that I wrote that chapter is that I know from my work with supervisees, colleagues, friends, um, and patients that to say uh, never disclose that feelings are mutual is not really helping anybody because people don't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I, I think that the relationships that we have with our patients especially if it's a long-term intensive treatment or analysis, um, warrants some kind of acknowledgement at some point, or at least you can think that um, at the end, especially in saying goodbye. It's, it's almost, uh, it almost becomes like a game if you can't, if you can't acknowledge what is so obvious mm. to the two of you. It, under certain circumstances, and I think I came up with like seven conditions that need to be met <laughs> in order yeah. to um, make a kind of verbal or nonverbal uh, acknowledgement of the mutuality in the relationship to make it acceptable and not slippery. Um, so, you know, I've gotten some feedback about that chapter and, um, you know, it's, it's controversial. Right. But I'm, so far I'm standing behind it. Um, yeah. I think that I want to help people find guidelines that they can actually follow because mm-hmm. otherwise if we say, you know, you should, you always have to maintain the asymmetry um, and cannot acknowledge what is also true in the room, which is the mutuality of it. Um, it's just not helpful. Right. People, people aren't going to do that. I think if I'm remembering correctly, you also talk about um, when a patient is demanding you disclose um, something about in words, you know, that they're, they're feeling something, but they are sort of demanding a disclosure on your part. That's, that's also a very different situation. That is a very different situation. And I think that, uh, that a disclosure is not a resolution of an impasse or a resolution of some problem. Um, a disclosure, especially erotic countertransference, should never be used to do some therapeutic work. Mm-hmm. Um, it should be used really when it's not necessary. <laughs> and so in a way, it, it makes it, it sort of begs the question, then why do it? I, I'm very fond of Shakespeare's Uh, Sonnet 23, I think it's an epigraph of that chapter, learn to read what silent love hath writ, to hear with eyes 
and see with ears is love's fine wit, something like that. Yeah. Which basically means learn to know when someone loves you without having to be told. Learn to feel it. Yeah. Learn to feel it. Yes. Because people who demand it generally don't feel it. And they don't feel it, perhaps, maybe it's not there to be felt. But more likely it is there and they have defenses against taking it in. And that's what they need help with. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of any number of patients over the years and, you know, he never says he loves me. She never says she loves me. You know, Mm -hmm. that that's very hard to take in. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Exactly. I mean, sometimes what I do in moments like that is I say, well, what is it that you feel is between us? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people will say, well, I, I know how you feel about me. In the case of Thomas, which is also in the book, in my book, um, uh, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't, uh, anyway, um, that's, that's a whole other thing. Right. Never mind. That would take us too far. Afield. Okay. Then we would be doing a double session because we, yeah. we have um, a 50 minute session here for new books and psychoanalysis. And we're actually, we have only a couple minutes, three or four minutes left. And I, um, I don't mean to put you on the spot to condense perversion into a three minute <laughs> <laughs> as if we could, but, um, um but I maybe know you say, wanted to get to that. Yeah. Question. Say a little uh-huh. bit about it because you, you talk mm-hmm. about it as a quality of relating, um, versus the labeling of behavior. And I think that's yeah. very important. Well, you know, I do have a kind of allergy to political correctness. I, if, if there's a word that has become, you know, just sort of taboo, maybe, maybe it's why I'm interested in erotic, erotics in the first place, because it was taboo. Uh, I don't know. But I, I saw the need for the word perversion, because I think it's a very complicated word. Yeah. And it, it means turning something on its head. And I think we do that. I think that, that it's a good description of a certain kind of defense. So that got me interested in a kind of reformulation of the word anyway. And I know that a lot of the difficulty with the word perversion uh, came from associating it with a set of behaviors, which then became taboo in, in and of themselves. And that is not the purpose of any psychoanalytic enterprise ever uh, to prescribe behavior. Right. So that was a totally wrong uh, direction to take. And psychoanalysis went down that road, even to the point of saying homosexuality was a perversion. Right. Was terrible. Um, so I was interested in figuring out, well, what is perversion then? And to think of it as a quality of relating that constricts and that turns something on its head was meaningful to me and something that I thought was clinically useful that I could see in both males and females. If you look at the literature on perversion, it's, you know, especially the the early literature, it's all males. Um, It's as if only males can be perverse, and that is not true. And then uh, because if you think of perversion as this quality of relating, you see perverse ways of relating in females a lot. And, and then it's, it's not a huge leap to see that it's mostly in relation to their body right. as opposed to uh, in relation to others. And you say that 
um, the female objectification of the self is an effort to control the dangerous subjectivity within. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, and th- I, this is overstate, oversimplifying it, but that the male perversion may be to um, manage the dangerous subjectivity of the other. Exactly. Exactly. I don't think that's an oversimplification. Okay. I think that's exactly what I said. Right. <laughs> I mean, it may, it's, it, it may, it, there's a lot more to it, but right. I, and that's, that's in a nutshell, uh, what I meant to get across. Yeah. And I think that would be for our listeners who want to learn more, you know, learn more about your thinking in this area that you, they can go to the book and read its part two and you cover it. Um, in many, many ways, sadomasochism, and it, it's very interesting, very thought-provoking. Thank you, Anne. Yeah. You. So I think we are actually coming to um, the end. We have a, just a minute or two. Is there anything that you wanted to add that I didn't ask about? or? Um, well, you know, I think, uh, no, I think you, I loved your questions. Um, I think it helped me uh, get back in touch with a lot of different parts of the book. There's, there is a joke that I put in the book. I don't remember which chapter, but it might be a nice ending to this podcast. Okay. To, um, to show the kind of how drawn we are to the mysteriousness of the other and at the same time how threatening it is. Mm. And this is a joke that appeared uh, in Playboy magazine that um, someone showed me a long time ago uh, where two... Two people, I actually don't remember if it's a woman and a man or two men or whatever, are in a nudist colony and they're walking naked along the beach or something. But one has a band aid on his arm and the other says, Can I see what's under Under that that. band aid? (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you. I love that. That was great. I do remember that from the book and it's, it's so true. It's sort of like what we're drawn to the hidden, no matter how little bit is hidden. Yeah. So, well, Andrea, I want to really thank you for the conversation and for being here. And I want to direct our listeners to our website, um, newbooksandpsychoanalysis.com. And there are links to, um, your website and to your book. And we have a comment section. If any of the listeners would like to um, comment on what you've heard Andrea say, or have any additional questions, we sometimes have the authors come back to um, have, have a little bit of a follow-up with listeners. If you'd like to do that, I'd be happy to do that. Yeah. And I'll let you know, but um, on that note, I'll thank everyone for listening today and bye for now. Thanks so much, Anne. It was a pleasure. Thank you.